Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren, and really excited today to have two very impressive folks from Norfolk, Virginia with us. We're going to be talking with George Homewood, who's the Director of Planning and Community Development, and Christine Morris, who is the Chief Resilience Officer. They both work in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, we're going to talk to them today about resilient communities and working together and all that good stuff. Uh, George, Christine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Kim. So let's just dive right in. Uh, you know, we're talking about resilience. Christine, of course, you're part, um, you're a chief resilience officer, and um, Norfolk is part of the 100 Resilient Cities program from the Rockefeller Foundation. Let's just talk about this word resilience and, and what it really means in, in Norfolk. You know, where did this come from? How is the city really emphasizing resilience? Sure. Well, uh, Kim, thanks for the opportunity to talk with uh, you and your guests today. Um, we use the 100 Resilient Cities definition of resilience. There probably are 100 out there, and I'm not saying that this is the right one. It just really fits for us for a couple of reasons. So we talk about uh, resilience as a capacity, almost a muscle to be exercised. And it's about individuals, and it's about whole communities, and it's about systems and their ability to first of all survive whatever comes their way, uh, to be adaptive to the future they're seeing, and then hopefully to grow. Uh, and, and this is all within the context of, of stresses and shocks, identified stresses and shocks. And sometimes those shocks or stresses are so great that a, a place or an individual or a city or a community might have to even transform itself. Um, and, and so that's really an exciting opportunity to talk with my citizens about resilience at the individual level, what, what every resident does uh, given Norfolk's future, what every community does, and what the city government does. But it's not just about uh, the government. It's about all of our partners, all the stakeholders in the cities, universities, faith-based communities, um, uh, civic groups, businesses. Uh, it's, it's everybody's got to be involved in this work. That's great, really thinking about it from the standpoint of, of the whole community, right? Because we are in this together, and I think when we're looking at you know, where I, I think a lot of local governments want to go now, there's a path that the local government can lay, uh, and certainly the, the government can lead by example, but we really need to bring everybody along for the ride here, and it sounds like that's the kind of work you're doing um, in Norfolk is, is getting everyone engaged at that level. That's the goal, for sure. Awesome. So something that's interesting to me, I was actually just down at the Florida APA conference speaking, uh, and something that came up in one of the sessions is about public opinion on how we're communicating um, different ways about, you know, sustainability, resilience, all these things. And this one gentleman provided some research that indicated that the general public does not like the word resilience, that it actually doesn't connect with them at all. I'm just curious if either of you have any reactions to that based on your experience um, in Norfolk. Yeah, so I don't, I don't necessarily think 
that resilience has to be the term you use when you're talking with people. I think what you have to do is connect the idea of resilience to what they care about. So, for instance, an individual is more resilient if, um, and then talk about the if, if they have a plan. So, um, if you're a resilient person, you have a plan, you have are prepared to execute on it. When you, when the time comes, you do execute on it, and um, and then you kind of check yourselves to see if that that thing worked, right? Um, so that's the conversation to have with people. It's not to drive down, you know, you have to think about resilience this way. It's about understanding uh, for the city what a resilient city looks like for us and then talking with people about those concepts where they connect with them. So I never really go out and talk a lot about resilience. I talk about how the city is planning for a future when the sea level is higher how it's planning for a future should the Navy decide to make changes in their deployment, how it's planning for a future to make sure that everybody has opportunity uh, to um, be connected to, uh, you know, workforce development, to jobs, to good housing, to strong neighborhoods. Um, that, if I do all those things, if we do all those things well, we'll be a resilient city. Do you have anything more, George? Just to, to piggyback a little bit on, on what Christine was saying, part of the resilience lens that we use here in Norfolk is that, um, and, and mostly because we're you know, not a wealthy place, is that no infrastructure should have a single purpose. Um, that every piece of infrastructure we, we build, every investment we make um, should have um, co-benefits, multiple benefits. Um, to the extent possible. So if we're going to build, um, if, if we're going to try to build a flood barrier, we would prefer to build it as a berm um, where you can put a bike trail on top of it and landscape it and turn it into a, a piece of um, public open space that can allow citizens to um, actually access the water as opposed to being walled off by it. Now, one of our concerns, and, and I guess we'll probably get into it a little bit um, when we talk about Vision 2100, is that Norfolk as a city for 400 years has been identified with and we have identified ourselves with the water. And some of the infrastructure being discussed quite literally walls us off from the water. And how does that change our identity? How does that make us different as a city, different as a people, different as a community? And those are the questions that really play into resilience. That's what makes resilience different than, say, hazard mitigation. Um, and that's why resilience is a much more powerful placement tool for cities than just simply looking at, at hazard or hazard mitigation. Awesome. So about two years ago, you released uh, a fairly robust resiliency strategy, again, through your 100 Resilient Cities program. Um, talk a bit just about that plan. I know you're, of course, following the, the program of 100 Resilient Cities, but this is very much focused on what matters to Norfolk. Could you talk a little bit about the plan itself and the key highlights? Sure. The, uh the methodology that the 100 Resilient Cities asks all of its member cities to follow is really a 
community-driven process. And so uh, for about the first six months uh, of the strategy development process, it really was a stakeholder engagement, talking with people about what keeps them up at night, what do they worry about, about the future, their future in Norfolk, and then uh, how can we begin to create a strategy that we collectively try to reduce the risk to those concerns. And so for us, the, the potential shocks and stresses were really around flooding. If you've been to Norfolk, you'll understand why. We're right on the coast. We uh, uh, are uh, experiencing the highest rate of relative sea level rise on the East Coast. And so flooding is an everyday um, worry for citizens of Norfolk. Um, but very quickly, uh, people talked about economic activity. We're a, we're a Navy town. Uh, we have uh, the largest naval station in, in, the, in the world. And so uh, we rely heavily on that, um, that economic engine. While we are thrilled to be part of, of that network of Navy strength, we also recognize that decisions are beyond our control uh, with respect to that. So we'd like to rebalance the portfolio a, lot, a little bit economically by building uh, other strengths in our economy. And then finally, uh, as, a, as a center city to a large region, an urban core, we do have a high level of poverty here in Norfolk. And we want to make sure that we are advancing the city's work to reduce that poverty and to give people opportunity. So our resilience strategy really focused around those three areas, and we call those our lenses by which we look at all of the activities of the city. Are we improving our ability to withstand flooding? Are we advancing economic uh, activity? And are we giving people more opportunity as we do our work? That's great. I mean, it's so important to be thinking about the economic side um, of this story as well as, uh, you know, the kind of environmental impacts. Um, you know, George, I'd be curious to understand, and, and Christine or George, who either could speak to this, is, um, you know, as you guys were developing this resiliency strategy, what did that look like as far as um, the engagement with, you know, between Christine, you and George, or his department, or all the other department heads. I mean, you talked about a stakeholder engagement process, but was this something that was kind of led by you and your team and, and coordinated with others? Could you describe that a little bit? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Christine talked about the, the whole of community approach, um, and we've also taken a whole of government approach um, as well. So. Um, the, the, the construct of Team Norfolk is very much um, a part of our DNA um, as a, a city government. And um, we have done, I think, an amazing job within um, local government of breaking down those traditional silos that tend to exist so that we all work together. Um, and so it wasn't one person necessarily doing the leading and other people doing the following. It was very much a collaborative effort um, with a lot of brainstorming and um, people sitting around and, and tossing out ideas and, and making um, somebody would say one thing and then you'd be followed up on it. Um, and so the original germ of an idea um, would have come from one part of the room and by the time um, we, we may have left 30 minutes later. Um, this, this whole new idea had been fully fleshed out and, and discussed at, at length with everybody in the room. So um, very much a collaborative and cooperative process 
um, and um, viewing ourselves as, as part of a team where on any given day somebody needs to, to step up and, and um, make that key hit, um, and that's, that's the way we've approached it. You know, Kim, I'll follow on with that to say as part of the resilience strategy, I, I want to uh, emphasize of Norfolk was resilient before they had a chief resilience officer. And so what we tried to do is build on all the good work that was already happening in the city and then to begin to, co to where we could um, advance that work uh, using the 100 Resilient Cities um, uh, access to, to resources. So really what, what I hope the CRO is is additive, uh, that it just pushes, is able to push even a little farther than the city is already going. Uh, but let's be clear, Norfolk had already, was well on a path uh, in its planning and its execution to uh, building a resilient city. That's so great. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask that question. You know, how much of this collaborative nature was um, already existing in the city and and where does that come from? Because I'm sure you can appreciate a lot of your colleagues across the country maybe don't have the luxury of that. They do have the silos that you talked about, George. Maybe they don't have leadership that's as enlightened. What do you think is kind of the biggest um, driver for that type of collaboration in your community? Is it at the leadership level or is it something the community's demanding? You know, I think it's, it's, it's a truism that things like that all start at the top. Um, and we've been blessed with both political and administrative leadership in Offic um, that has believed in, in working together uh, collaboratively to solve our problems and, and to, to move our city forward. So, I mean, I think a lot of it starts at the top. But um, our citizens, um, they love to just roll up their sleeves and, and jump right in and help. Uh, so, um, yeah, leadership has played a large role in it, but. Um, it has found receptive ears in, in both the, the city staff and the, and the city citizens. That's great. Um, I do want to take that this collaboration um, discussion just a little bit deeper from, again, from the standpoint of our listeners thinking, okay, well, um, you know, maybe they have a CRO, maybe they don't. But maybe it's you know a planning director coordinating with a public works director or utilities director. Um, there's a lot of different ways, but you know your particular relationship, planning of course, um, you know your long-term thinkers, you guys are the vision, um, the strategy. Talk a bit about what this relationship looks like for communities that you know might be considering hiring a CRO um, or some type of position that that works like that and kind of what that that day-to-day -day looks like in practice for you guys uh, you know sometimes I think that that Christine finishes my sentences for me um, that's how close we we work together um, in this arena now surely there are other things that we do in planning uh, that the resilience office is not involved with and there's things that, that Christine and the resilience folks do that um, planning is not directly involved with. But um, it has been um, a, a very synergistic relationship. Um, and um, it, it, the other point I guess need to make is that Christine, um, through the association with the, the 100RC, has been able to bring resources to bear on questions we've had in planning so that we've been able to we on 
certain questions about how we should think about certain things or, or um, how we should we um, approach um, various aspects. She's been able to help us reach out to other cities in the 100RC network, um, talk to our peers um, in, in government, but even more importantly, talk to our peers that are in um, the, the not-for-profit world and in and, and the private sector. Uh, and so we've been able to, to use that synergy um, to do what we do even better. And I think it's I think it's key that um, that the departments be open to uh, this kind of collaboration. Uh, you really need people who are searching that that recognize the future is going to be different than the past, and that there are new problems and new challenges to be solved, and that's going to take creative thinking to do that, and that they want to be out in front of this conversation because. And a lot of this stuff, there aren't any best practices yet. We're mm -hmm. kind of building that uh, airplane as we fly it. And um, you, you got to be okay making a few mistakes, uh, you know, trying some things that maybe won't work the first time. But it's this idea of adapting. I keep going back to that, that, that you have to look at what's coming, look at who you are, understand what you're trying to reduce your risk to, and be willing to make changes over time that allow you to be in a better position uh, in the future. So it really takes a, a, the talent at the city that really wants to embrace that concept. And, and in George, I found a, a tremendous talent who wants to embrace uh, that future, recognizes it's coming, and uh, wants to put this city in the best position to, to be able to reduce the risk to the challenges of that future. It's so nice uh, and refreshing to see, you know, and hear how well you guys are working together. And, and it sounds like with most of your colleagues, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm just curious if there's any advice you might have um, if either of you have run into any naysayers. Um, you know, some people just can't think about change. It's not in their DNA. Um, they can't function like that. Is there any advice you could give to other local governments that might be you know, trying to do this, but maybe hitting a, a couple of hurdles that folks that have uh, maybe some control over certain areas that they're just not able to think differently? Well, I, I think that every person who's risen to the level of, of a department director is looking at a future, and they've got plans around that future. And I think you have to really understand how they're thinking about the problems that they're seeing and see if they're they're open to um, exploring that problem uh, further, whether that's directly in the same way that they've been thinking about it or to, to slightly shift their focus. I, I don't think this is a, a, a situation where you're asking people to do a 180 shift. I think it's more of a three to five degree shift in, in, in work. Um, cities are big boats and they're hard to turn. So you, you have to really think about the you know where the opportunity is and how how that shift can happen, um, but not asking people to to give up everything that they've thought about or or believe in or 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 know, just asking them to come a little further with you um, uh, and recognizing very early in the process that you may be wrong that the CRO may be absolutely wrong about the way they're thinking about this and they've got to acknowledge that at the beginning. Uh, so that everybody can feel comfortable that their voice will be heard. Mm 
That's great. I love how you're kind of referring to, you know, a three to five percent shift rather than this 180, because I think you're right. I think people think, you know, uh, the CRO or a sustainability director or whoever comes in and they're asking you to just completely change everything. Um, and really it's, it's this smaller shift. And as you were saying early, it's asking them maybe to apply, um, another lens to their daily work. Um, this resilience lens that you've kind of created through your, your resilience strategy. What does that look like, um, you know, on a practical basis? So whether, um, you know, you're looking at a new development coming in, um, or issuing permits, whatnot, um, what does it look like? for to make sure that resilience lens is getting applied well <laughs> I, I, the the advantage of the resilience lens in in many ways is that it adds tools to the toolbox um, so whereas before you were trying to build an arc with only a hammer uh, now you've got a, a screwdriver, and golly, you might even be an electric screwdriver. Um, and these additional tools um, allow us to not only think in somewhat different ways, but also to react in somewhat different ways. Um, so um, you know, one, one example we're using here in, in Norfolk is, um, and I think we've, we've already talked about it and we'll talk some more about it, but, you know, flooding is a pernicious problem. And um, if we think about how to treat the raindrop as close to where it falls as possible, rather than um, allowing it um, or, or intentionally directing it to go to the street as quickly as possible, then all of a sudden we, that's a different way of thinking and it, is everybody doing a little bit um, that to all together is could make a great big di great deal of difference now christine can correct me if i'm wrong but to me resilience is not so much about extreme weather events it's about how we deal with the daily stresses it's how we deal with the, th the fact that um, we have 350 hours of nuisance flooding a year um, because that's what's going to make us resilient, is dealing with and adapting to that, not the fact that um, if the, we get a, a Category 4 storm bearing straight down on us, um, that we're going to, to survive that any better um, than in any of our friends. I mean, even in our worst-case scenarios that we've been talking about with the Corps of Engineers, we're not talking about getting hit with a Cat 5. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is how to deal with the storm surge of a hundred-year storm, not the storm surge of a of a thousand-year storm. That's such a good point, George. Um, of course, flooding is a very pertinent topic. Un unfortunately, uh, we're just coming out of uh, Harvey and Irma, and of course, Jose is right behind. Um, you know. Talk a little bit about kind of what it looks like for you guys. I mean, you're, you hear these storms coming up the coast, you know, certain tracks could mean they come your way. What, what's that preparation and, and what's the point where it's evacuation? So, um, you know, we have a fabulous emergency preparedness director, Jim Riddick, 
who really um, is the lead in helping the city under those emergency situations. And he's created uh, within the city of Norfolk, in the government, a team, and then an external team of, of uh, organizations that have resources and have, um, uh, you know, assets at risk, and, and to collectively plan for how to respond to uh, certain levels of emergency, whether that be a hurricane or, you know, we live in a, a military town, so it could be, um, you know, uh, uh, an attack on an installation. Um, and, and so that, when, when that um, gets operationalized, Really, it is, it's, quite, it's quite something to see uh, how Jim coordinates among all of the stakeholders and, and has a, a standard operating procedures that they check off. But the, the final you know, decision on evacuation is, a, is a, one that, is, that has state involvement that we have to think about. We live in a large region, and, and the city manager you know, will make those calls. Um, uh, but... Uh, uh, you know, obviously, it, it is all about health and safety of the citizens at that point. Um, and so uh, there's a very standard way of evaluating that risk and, and when it's time to make that decision. And, you know, I guess it's really just hoping that all of the, you know, any actions or, or project measures that you've put into place, whether from your your resilience strategy or your vision 2100 plan that, you know, those are holding up, right? I mean, that's kind of the hope that you're heading in that, that correct direction. So I think, you know, these, these catastrophic storms are, are something that um, I always say there's some storm that will get any city. The question is, you know, back to that resilience, have you done the things that you need to do to, first of all, survive it? When you build back, will you adapt um, in ways that will maybe reduce the, the severity of the damage. And as a city, can you grow in, in the future, uh, given the, the risks that you face? And so, you know, when you think about a, a Cat 4 or a Cat 5 hurricane, you know, what have we done the things as individuals, in my resilience and uh, uh, mantra, as communities and as systems, that make it more likely that we can survive? Uh, at, you know, is, the, is the energy system a little more resilient? Will it come up more quickly? Is it redundant? Um, do we have different ways to keep the pumps on as long as possible? All of those things, um, you know, but in the end, um, sometimes you do need to get, out, uh, get your residents out of harm's way. And so this is, um, you know, the resilience is the ability to know <laughs> and to be making decisions in ways that increase the likelihood that you're going to be able to survive as, as long as possible in place, and then when you can't, that you have the, the, the sense um, to move people out of harm's way. Well, and kind of along those lines, George, I had read an article in the New York Times where you were quoted as saying, we absolutely cannot protect 200 miles of coastline. We have to pick those areas we should armor and the places where we're going to let the water be. Um, this kind of notion of abandonment or relocation um, is certainly a very challenging uh, part of the conversation around resilience planning. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how the city kind of makes those decisions, um, looking at those areas, and you know, how does what does that look like implementing it on the ground? Well, let me 
start by saying that there's no abandonment that is part of any plan that we have um, developed here in, in Norfolk. Um, certain areas deserve different strategies, um, and that's part and parcel of the, the Vision 2100 process. We did something fairly unique um, in Vision 2100, and that is we went around and asked people, um, said, okay, we're in a, we, we do live in a rising water environment, and sea level rise is, is real and it's going to impact us. So let's think about what are the assets of our city? What are the people, the places, the events, and the things that make Norfolk, Norfolk? What, in other words, put another way, what are the things that if they weren't here, we'd be a big city on the coast, but we really would have lost our identity as Norfolk, Virginia, um, at least as we identify and, and understand that identity today. And so we looked heavily at those identity assets that make us who we are and, and what we are and, and give us this sense of being um, a special place. And we looked and said, where are they? And are they things that can actually be picked up and moved? So if you have something that is currently in one place, does it matter that it's in that one place? Or does it just matter that it happens in Norfolk? And so going through that calculus, we developed um, a matrix. Um, essentially, we divided the city into to three or excuse me, four parts um, based on um, the, the value of identity assets and the, the degree of risk. And so those areas that had lots and lots of identity assets um, and are at great risk, those are the areas that we said we probably need to figure out how to, um, to armor in some way. Um, other places, um, we can live with water. And in some, some of these, it's not that we're giving up the land. Maybe in some cases, we're creating a place for the water to be. Over our history in Norfolk, we, uh, like many coastal cities, uh, particularly coastal cities of the colonial era, um, we, we filled in lots of, of wetlands and we, we took creeks and we put them into, to first into some sort of a channel and then later into pipes um, and um, built over top of them. And in some cases, the, the streams that used to provide the, the place for the ships to pull up to the warehouses um, got put into pipes and those became streets. Um, and that's sort of how we developed over time, and we're not unusual in that at all. But what we, have found, what we fi are finding now is that as the, the sea level is rising and pushing back at some of the things that we have done, then we get the summer rain bomb, and the water wants to be where the water wants to be, which bears a strange resemblance to the places that the water used to be and where those creeks um, and streams and, and uh, wetland areas that we filled um, formerly were. So one of the strategies we've talked about at great length is daylighting some of these creeks and streams, allowing the water to be there uh, where it wants to be, and that protects the land around it. I've, I've 
friend of mine has always said that you you know the great thing about waterfront property is that God isn't making any more of it. Well, we started thinking that if you're daylighting some of these streams, you may actually be making some more waterfront property. Um, and in a city that's defined by water, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. That's such a great overview, George, and, and it's such a great point. I I'm from the Northeast. Lots of uh, Lots of old communities up here, and the city I used to work for, we did the same exact thing. I mean, so many of our uh, waterways were underground in pipes, and, and yeah, that's where the flooding would happen and during an, an extreme event. In fact, we used to have tidal rivers, and then, of course, we put a dam up and completely changed the ecosystem. Um, but one big storm comes, uh, that could knock that dam out and change everything again. So I, I love that you're thinking about... Who are we and, and who do we want to continue to be and not necessarily saying this needs to be exactly here. We just want to make sure this particular asset is part of our city. It doesn't necessarily have to be on that street or in that part of the community. That's a great perspective. Of course, there are things that have to be where they are. Um, the, the piers that the those big gray things that the Navy sails. Yeah. You know, those, those kind of have to be on the water. Yeah, um, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> same thing with the, the, the cranes and gantries at the, at the Port of Virginia. Um, that Those container ships aren't going to um, all of a sudden sprout wheels and, and drive on, on land. So, you know, there are some things that have to be exactly where they are. Um, and those are the kinds of things where we said we've got to figure out how to adapt those areas to allow them to not just survive, but to thrive uh, in a rising water environment. And so we've been talking a lot about um, just this broader community engagement, working together with key stakeholders, with your community. Um, Christine, I wonder if you can talk a bit about the uh, tactical resilience workshop that was held and, you know, what talk about what that was and, and kind of those examples that were given that might be something that other communities could could follow suit. So George talked a little bit about this idea of holding the water where it rains um, and rather than letting it you know move down the uh, watershed and, and flood the bottom of the watershed where those uh, daylighted creeks um, were were filled and as part of that strategy, we've thought a lot about using all of our lands to hold water, in, increasing the ability of, of our land to, to store water. And, and a lot of the land in, in every city is, in, is not in the public domain, it's in the private domain. So we really wanted to engage our citizens around being part of a model, a system of water management uh, using their own property. And so we um, reached out to the 100 Resilient Cities platform partners and asked if we could hold a workshop to think about how we use a tactical urbanism model to do something like that. So we worked with a, a nonprofit called Street Plan Collaborative and a, a, a nonprofit called IOBI to create a, a workshop in the arts district of the community that's very comfortable with tactical urbanism, the, the idea that, you know, stuff just pops up and, and you try it, and, and if it works, it's great, and if it doesn't, you try something else. And so they came uh, to uh, the city and helped us put on a workshop where we created different types of uh, water retention systems that could go on private land to see if it would work in reducing the 
flow of water into an intersection. And about 60 residents from the two or three neighborhoods that were invited uh, came, and uh, in a day we put in bioswales and rain gardens and uh, uh, installed rain barrels and, um, and, and tried to see what would happen to this intersection. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a huge success for us um, in, in that it, it proved that we could have an impact if we, if we worked together as a system to retain water. Um, but I think more importantly, it started to show people that they don't have to wait for the city to come and, and you know, tell them what to do and how to do it, that, that they could come together together. IOBI is an online fundraising uh, app uh, or, or system that they could actually collectively raise money and, and begin to institute these kinds of projects on their own. And so this is the kind of work that we want to continue to build that individual resilience to say that I can be part of a solution to a problem that I see in my neighborhood. We've seen um, other communities do it in other ways. Uh, what, one community came together and, and asked um, for the city to donate a parcel that was abandoned on their street and they were able to uh, create a, a rain garden in that parcel and to reduce the, the runoff from that street that was causing flooding at, at, at the bottom. So this is the kind of thinking that we want our citizens to be engaged in. Um, this idea of tactical urbanism, that everything doesn't have to be a huge project, that you can just try stuff on the fly, see if it works, that we want to be this innovative city, uh, that we want to encourage that innovation amongst businesses and individuals and that we're here to support that to the extent that we can, and that we want to be a leader in this process. And so I think that tactical urbanism approach was a great way to do it. And, and it really had, again, uh, grown out of something that had predated the, the, the resilience work, and that was the better block model that um, our public works group had already been experimenting with, that, that could you create uh, a sense of economic activity using a, a better block pop-up model over a weekend and try to see if, if stuff would work. And um, we're just going to continue to try to push that envelope uh, to use um, uh, small projects, innovative projects, to see if, if we can find solutions to these ever-evolving challenges. Yeah, I think that it's also a great model of how our citizens want to be involved, how they want to be able to do something. They don't want to sit idly by and, and wait. Uh, they want to be involved. They want to get out and, and, and do things um, that have a positive impact on the, the community. And it is, you know, not just in, in rainwater, but um, in, uh, you know, some of our, our neighborhood and social and economic resilience um, efforts as well. This is, you know, I mean, this makes me want to move to Norfolk. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Your community. Oh, we've got a blank for you. Yep. That sounds great. Uh, you know, it just sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I will definitely at least come for a visit soon. Um, these are great examples that um, I love that you mentioned IOBI. I mean, what an easy way for, you know, other communities to think about, hey, funding, it doesn't, not everything has to come out of the general fund. There's ways to be really creative here. Um, obviously, there's grants and other opportunities I, I know you all have, have utilized, but even just taking this idea of, you know, the tactical urbanism, the pop-up concept, so it doesn't feel so scary, uh, like a huge project that somebody has to take on and manage for years. Um, it just feels very feasible, and, and from the resident standpoint and business standpoint as well, it's like, all right, well, let me try this out on a Saturday and see what I think. 
um, you know, I think it's just a much more realistic way that people are more interested in engaging. Um, and, and it's a better way, I, I think, to, to get folks in um, in a place where it's very relevant to them. You know, sometimes we do our huge, big visioning and planning processes, and as an individual, you know, I might not see how it's, I'm connected to that, but I definitely see how I'm connected to something happening right in my neighborhood, right? Yeah, I think that's the key, to give people the sense that they are part of the solution and ha there's something they can do. Awesome. Well, I think uh, you've given our uh, listeners a lot to digest here. Um, you know, as I kind of run through a lot of the highlights here, you know, it, it, it certainly has been helpful for you all to have strong local leadership um, and really being able to work together collaboratively, both within government as well as with your key stakeholders with that acknowledgement that um, the future is going to be different than the past and, and even the present uh, to some extent, but it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a total 180 shift. It's more of a, a three to five percent shift by, you know, putting on that resilience lens to our to our day to day, um, and certainly engaging your community members where they're at and in a way that they feel like they can be part of the solution. So, this has been um, so informative and so interesting. Um, I could see talking to you both for hours, uh, and I will. I'll come down to Norfolk and we'll grab lunch sometime, and we'll talk more about this great stuff. Um, but in the meantime, I just wanted to thank you both so much for your time and for the great work that you're doing. Um, you really are uh, an inspiration for other communities. Thanks so much, Kim, for the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, appreciate it, Kim. You got it. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?